Alrighty. Tonight we're in Second Samuel. Still. Well, let's open in a word of prayer and then we'll look at Second Samuel chapter 12. Father, we thank you for your word and Lord, we thank you that we can gather here in this place and, and just um, ask you to meet us here through the power of your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would communicate to us uh, the truth that you want us to take away from here tonight as we look at uh, David's uh, confession and being called out. And Lord, we just pray that you would uh, remind us of your grace and your mercy in our lives. Lord, we think of different folks in our congregation. Think of Lois with her neck and she's healing up and and others, uh, Lord, who are dealing with uh, different ailments. Lord, pray that you'd be gracious with them. Just reveal to them your, your love and your mercy in their time of need. And Lord, we pray tonight that you would just give us a blessed time in your word. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're in Second uh, Samuel chapter 12. And I uh, want to go ahead and read, uh, read the, the scripture for us. And then we'll kind of go through our outline together and uh, go review this uh, chapter. Second Samuel chapter 12, the rebuke of David from Na- uh, Nathan. And the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink of his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for a guest, for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much, much more. Verse 9, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you had despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel before and before the son. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise, stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood the child was dead. 
And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Verse 20, Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes and went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive. But when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against uh, Rabah and the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then, gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount, and he brought out the people who were in it and sent them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the city of the uh, cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. Pretty incredible chapter. Uh, it really speaks to David's remorse over his sin. But I, I I'm reminded. I think it was Lord Lord Acton who talking about power and authority he said when it comes to great great men we must never start with a favorable presumption that they did or can do no wrong if there is any presumption it is the other way against the holders of power increasing as the power increases and then he says this that we know so well power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely uh, remember, in chapter 11, we're reminded, chapter 11 and 12 go together, okay? We, we have chapter breaks just for our understanding and able to find things, but they're not inspired necessarily. And so, you know, chapter 11 and 12 go together as a story like 9 and 10 did. And they stand together as one account. And the last time when we were in chapter 11, a couple weeks ago, <coughs> we saw the example of David's brute power. Just overwhelming brute power. Uh, and it seems like whatever gifts and talents and graces that God had given him, they're almost held in, in, in a pause here. Because uh, he had a, a lot of gifts and talents from the Lord. But it's almost like they're, they're held in, in, in suspension here for a period of time. And we see in chapter 11, if you remember, that the absolute power and its abuse by King David, by a monarch, by God's king. And we said if there's one verb in chapter 11 that stands out above all others, it was the verb, do you remember? Take. He took. He took and he took and he took and he took. He took another man's wife. He took another man's life. And whatever he sees in chapter 11, he just snatches it and takes it. And when it comes to Bathsheba, he sees her, he summons her, he uses her, and then he dismisses her. There's no mention of love, there's no mention of conversation, there's no mention of anything. And then, on top of that, he has her husband killed. And then he brings her into his household. 
So here is David, God's king, man after God's own heart, right? Responsible for blood guilt. He's, he's responsible here for capital offenses. He committed adultery, and he also committed murder. Um, it also seems to go, after this, this whole story, it almost goes back to the normative narrative in chapter 12, except for the end of chapter 11. And we mentioned this last time. It says, But the thing that David had done, what? Displeased the Lord. It displeased the Lord. Remember, this was a guy who was always trying to find out what does God want him to do. He was, he was respectful even when Saul, his enemy, he could have taken him out several times, but he didn't do it. Uh, he was respectful of that authority over him. And so here at the end of chapter 11, in the beginning of chapter 12, all of the verbs that speak of David acting, all the, the, the verbs that tell us that he took this, he did this, he did that, they stop. And now it's time for God to act. It's time for God to do something. Uh, it says so the, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Uh, I think it's the Holman translation. It says literally was evil in the eyes of the Lord. That's what God thought of what David did. And so when you run into this in our modern day life, when you see somebody who's doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, you expect a certain response. Right? From the Lord. Well, I ask the question, what does God do in response to David's grievous sin here? Well, he doesn't do what I would have done. <laughs> and that's, that's key. We're very quick to judge other people. We're very quick to act as if we're, we're the great judge in the sky and we, we cast down our judgment on people. But that's not always the right thing to do. And here... I don't think what God did was what any of us would done would have done. I mean, I would have thought God would zap him, nuke him, just take him out. I mean, this was a grievous sin. And and remember, in chapter eleven, we we disposed of all the myths that said, well, somehow this was Bathsheba's fault. You know, she was up, you know, scantily clad by the pool on the rooftop. And we talked about they didn't have pools on their rooftops. It was a city, so there's multiple rooftops. The idea of a, of a woman unclothing herself in public like that, where other people could see, would just that would not have flown in that culture. Even today, it wouldn't have flown. And so that whole mindset is thrown out the window. The, the scripture mentions nothing of Bathsheba's actions here, but it pins it all on David without excuse. You know, I've heard sermons on how, well, David was enticed by her beauty. Well, it's not a sin to be beautiful. That doesn't give me the, the right to, hey, I want that woman. Bring her over here. I'm going to sleep with her. Then I'm going to kill her husband and bring her into my for that. That, that. There's no reason for that. There's no excuse for what David has done. But here we see what God literally does he does what we would not have done he doesn't nuke him he doesn't zap him but instead god speaks to him isn't that like our god our gracious god he speaks to us when we're down he speaks to us when we're in trouble he speaks to us when we're in sin god speaks to him and and what this chapter does it, it changes the whole focus from what david is doing and what he has done wrong now it's focused on what God says. It's focused on God's word to David. And thereby his word to us even. I mean, David does deserve death, would you say? I mean, he murdered a man, had a man murdered, committed adultery. Uh, think about Saul. King Saul, he sinned. Right? And what happened to him? He lost his whole kingdom. So you would think, well, if God's going to be fair, if God's going to be just, there can't be much hope for David here. Well, here David sinned grievously, but he doesn't lose his kingdom. 
I mean, how, how do we figure this out? See, the answer to this dilemma is in what God says. It's, it's, it's in what God's word to David is. And the first point here is God's word to David is a gracious word. Look at what it says in verse 1 of chapter 12. After what he had done in the sight of the Lord was evil, the very first words of the next verse there, and the Lord sent, what? Nathan. The Lord sent Nathan, the prophet. The prophet was the one in charge of giving out God's word, disposing of God's word to the people. And it's just ironic that all of a sudden, everything that David has done comes to a screaming halt. And now it's not David sending, because he had his fair share of sending, remember? In chapter 11, we talked about this. He did a lot of sending in chapter 11. He sent for the messengers. He said, and then he sent about Bathsheba, and then he sent for Bathsheba, and then he sent for her husband, and then by the husband, he sent a, his death warrant with the husband back to the front lines, and then he sent for the messengers to get some information from the soldiers of what's happening, what happened out there. Well, all that stops at the end of chapter 11, and now it's God's time to act. It's God's time to do something, and what does God do? He sends Nathan the prophet to David. Uh, I mean, I can think of a lot of things to send to David at this point. And one of them is not a prophet by God, from God. You know, I, I'd send him some judgment, maybe some, some sores, some, you know, maybe a Job kind of thing going on with David. But God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all. He sends what? He sends his word through this prophet. What does that See, the, this is the, the good news that we talk about. You know, you hear about the good news of the gospel. This is the good news. Preaching is good news. Why is it good news? Because as long as someone's preaching the gospel, we know that the judgment of God hasn't fallen yet. As long as God is still sending forth prophets and pastors and preachers and, and missionaries, we know that God's not done yet. Because he's still wanting his word to go out. That's the good news that preaching brings. As long as God sends preachers into the world, then there's good news. It was, it was the Apostle Paul, remember, who says, well, how can, how can they preach unless they're what? Unless they're sent. And faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. So here God is going to send this prophet to David, and he's going to show David some grace. He's going to give David a picture of grace. Now, the Word of God isn't always, it doesn't always seem as gracious or good to us when it's delivered to us, does it? Sometimes we have to hear a hard word from God. Um, and that can be difficult. Someone once said, the word of God is meant to comfort the disturbed and disturbed, disturb the comforted, right? That's, that's the purpose of the word of God. Uh, if, you're, if you're feeling kind of lax in your spiritual life, then maybe God's got to send you a hard word to get you unrelaxed. Or if you're feeling a little disturbed, maybe God's got to be a little more gracious with you and give you a little peace in your life, whatever it might be. But by sending Nathan the prophet, God's word literally like a dog is chasing down David. God is telling David, not so fast. I am not done with you yet. He's hunting David down through this prophet. And this prophet is going to confront him. It's even going to shake him up with the word that he delivers to him. But underneath, it exposes the true grace that lies beneath all this sin and everything else. And we, we're going to see that David still has sensitivity to these things. He's not a calloused sinner even though his sins were grievous. I mean, murder, adultery, think about it. So the word of God comes to David as a gracious word. It's good news. But it's not only a gracious word, but I also think it's a wise word. Because look at what Nathan does. Nathan the prophet. He came to him and he said to him, what's he do? He starts to tell him a story. You know, How many of you like to go confront your boss? No, 
I mean, can you imagine confronting the king or a president? And you've got to say something hard to them? Uh, sometimes I think as Christians we think, well, I know what I know and I know it's right, so I'm just going to let people have it. That's not what God wants. That causes more disruption and chaos than it does, you know, anything else. Now, it doesn't mean that we never stand up for the truth. We don't just let the truth go get watered down and say nothing about it. We obviously have to speak up. But what's important to understand is that when we speak up, there's a way to do it. And here, this prophet Nathan uses wisdom in confronting King David. Think about it. He knows what's going on through God's divine intervention. He's got to go tell David some very hard information. And he knows what David does with people who sometimes don't agree with him. I mean, he's the king. He can just, with a snap of his fingers, and your head's rolling across the floor, okay? I mean, this is a very serious thing. And so what does Nathan do? The Lord leads Nathan to tell this story. And we, we read it. We don't have to go through the whole thing. It's a story of two men, a rich man and a poor man. It's kind of interesting because when you read the story, it doesn't say anything about the rich man. It just says what? He had many, very many flocks and herds. That's all we know about the rich man. That's all we need to know. (laughs) He had it made. He was on easy street. He had everything provided for him. Everything was there. But then the narrative gives most of the information here to the poor man. And it tells about how, you know, he was poor, had nothing. The only thing he had was one little ewe lamb. Just this tiny little ewe lamb. And he had bought it. Probably with the money that he had, which was probably very little. That's why it was a little ewe lamb. But it says, look at what it says in verse 3. He cared for it. He brought it up. And it grew up with him. So this had become part of their, kind of their family. You know, this, this ewe lamb, they weren't just raising it to eat it. You know, my brother used to have a, a farm. They called it the Macon Bacon Farm. And uh, he raised hogs. And so, you know, I remember when we, we'd go back there on occasion, and they'd have these little, these little piglets running around, you know. And they're kind of cute. They're messy, but they're cute, you know. And then I remember my brother saying, yeah, that one's going to grow. He'll be a good one when we slaughter him. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. You know, but that's what they do on a farm. You raise the animals, and then you slaughter them, and you eat them. Or you sell the meat or whatever. And so here we see this, this, this little ewe lamb grew up with him. It grew up with his children. It even used to eat his morsels and drink from his cup, lie in his arms. And then it says this, it was like a daughter to him. Whoa. I mean, you can kind of see where Nathan's gone here, right? But David doesn't have a clue. He has no idea. And, and what's, what's, what's interesting, if you th- think of this picture, this poor guy... You know, they probably all live in a, you know, a one-room little shack with maybe a sink and a little stove to cook on, and they probably got a big bed in the middle of the room that everybody sleeps. You know, did you ever see Willy Wonka? You know, remember the old Willy Wonka, and they go to the, the little kid's house, and it's an old little shanty, and you go in, and the grandparents, everybody's laying every which way on this giant bed. That's what I picture going on here. They got the little lamb there on top of everybody else. You know, they're just all, they're very poor people. They don't have multiple rooms. They don't have multiple beds. What's interesting here is uh, the, the, the whole I- idea of, of this, 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 um, this scenario. It says, and it was like a, a, a daughter to him. That, that word apparently, in the Hebrew, starts with the same letters as Bathsheba. B-A-T in the Hebrew language. So there's, you know, it goes right over David's head, but I'm sure Prophet Nathan here is, is, as he's sharing this, you want me to say it's his daughter? I mean, he's going to know what I'm going to go after then, you know. But it goes right over. David didn't catch on at all. Nathan was wise. He used this story from God to get this point across. 
Uh, and so, you know, the story goes on and he continues. He says, well, the rich man, you know, he had a guest, unexpected guest, and he was so stingy and rich, he didn't want to use his own animals to slaughter, to provide a meal for the, the guest. So what did he do? He said, I got this poor neighbor. I'll just go take his little ewe lamb and we'll have a nice little barbecue. And that's exactly what they did. Now, this guy's rich. He probably has servants, probably big servants. They probably went over and they said, yeah, that'd do. Went right into the house, grabbed the ewe lamb off the thing, went out, went out back, slit its throat, threw it on the barbecue. I mean, how, what a traumatizing thing for this family. This, this is part of their, you know, this is one of their pets. But this rich guy didn't care. And what's curious, what's interesting, when it says here in verse 4, it says the guest, the guest had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb. He took it. Remember chapter 11? What was David doing? Taking. He was taking everything. Everything in sight. Took Bathsheba. Took, took, took her husband's life. David's reaction clearly, verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. Now this wasn't a capital offense to take somebody's lamb and barbecue it. So he said, well, we can't kill the guy, but you know what? We're going to make him restore that lamb fourfold because of he did this thing. Because he had, look at that, no pity. He had no pity. What does this show us? Really, it, 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 it kind of unveils to us that David still has a soul. <laughs> Even though he did what he did in chapter 11, murdered Uriah, took Bathsheba, did all those things. He still has a soul. He still has a sensitivity to injustice. He has an eye for injustice. When, he told, when Nathan told him that story, King David reacted in anger. Why? Because that's the normal reaction. You know, an abnormal reaction would be, well, how'd it taste? Do you got any left? I want some. That would be like a psychopath, right? I mean, that would be kind of crazy to tell that story and somebody says that. David didn't respond that way. No, he responded, wow, this is not right. How could they do this thing? And what that shows us is that this wise word from Nathan, really, it showed us how to speak truth to power. How do you speak truth to someone who's powerful, whether it's your boss, whether it's a king, whether it's whatever, you go for the emotions. You go for the heart. You go for the basic sense of right and wrong. Um, the other day I was taking an astrophysicist from Stanford. He actually is from Canada, but he was here on a, a teaching thing at Stanford. I took him to the airport, and I was talking to him. This is like 4.30 in the morning. And I said, you know, the one thing that always bothers me about physics and all this stuff, and you would know a lot more than I would. And he's a nice gentleman. He's from uh, Poland. I said, you know, when you get right down to the minutest part of the atom and all that stuff, and all that stuff is just, you know, going around. I said, do you ever wonder, just as a scientist, what holds this all together? Why doesn't it just go, <laughs> well, that's, that's a very good question. That's... You know, that's what we're searching for. We're, we're, you know, we're right now, we're doing research, and we've been doing research for years. That's, that's very interesting that you would bring that up, you know, and after 10 minutes, he had no answer. Nothing, nothing. But he goes, we're continuing to look, you know. And I said, I just thought it was interesting because, you know, I mean, sometimes the obvious is right in front of us. He goes, what do you mean by that? I said, well, you know, I mean, there's some verses in the Bible, and I know you're, I don't know if, what your faith is. And he goes, well, I, you know, I'm a scientist. I said, okay, that's fine, but just hear me out on this. And he goes, okay. And I said, you know, there's some verses in the Bible that says, you know, it's, it's the power of Christ that holds all this together. It's God's power. And I'm looking at him in the rearview mirror, and I'm like, I, you know, and he's just looking at me like, you know, he's these little eyes in the darkness peering out at me, and I thought, he's either going to get mad at me or went out of the car or whatever. And I said, I'm just telling you, from my faith perspective, 
That puts a lot of questions at ease for me. And he didn't say anything. He had no response. So I thought, oh, I'll just keep going. You know, so I said, you know, I mean, like when you look at the human body, for example, I said, you know, you look at the eye or you look at the brain and how it's put together. I mean, do you really, as a scientist, do you really believe that it was just like this primordial soup that sludge that it just happened to turn into what we see today? That doesn't seem like science to me. He didn't say anything. So I went a little further. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, it's kind of like when you walk into a room and you, 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 know, you, you look on the wall and you see a beautiful painting. I mean, w- would it be wise as a scientist to say, wow, where did, where did that come from? How, where did that exist from? Where? No, you would conclude that if you have a painting, you must have to have a painter. Right? And I kind of turned around. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true, you know. I said, it's just something to think about, right? And we're getting close to 380 there where you turn off and go into the airport. And I'm like, uh, I said, you know, I, I, I know I'm not a scientist, but I said, the, the Bible does speak to some of these things. And as a scientist, I know you just want to deal with the facts, right? I mean, a scientist doesn't draw their conclusion and then try to make their, their facts you know, arranged to, to reach their conclusion, they, they use the facts and they take it where the facts lead them, right? That's what proper science is. And he agreed with me. I said, well, I would just really ask that you would look at that, you know, that aspect of it. And the idea that maybe there is a greater power that actually put all this here for us to enjoy. And you know, I continued on and he, he enjoyed the conversation. But I thought, you know, that's kind of what Nathan is doing here with David, he's, he's telling this story and kind of, you know, acting like Inspector Clouseau kind of a thing, you know, um, Columbo kind of a deal. And, uh, you know, yeah, well, okay, wait a minute, you're saying this. And, and that's really what's happening here. And it, it appealed to David's what? His, his emotion, his sense of right and wrong. And sometimes that's the quickest way to reach someone for Christ. You know, and then he allows you to open up the word of God and share more with them. But at least it it gets your foot in the door. And so his word was not only a gracious word and a wise word, but it was also a severe word, a severe word. Because after David's emotions are raised and he's kind of drawn him into this, what does he do? Now comes the punchline, right? It's like, okay, he's lining the T up and he's just going to knock this thing right, right home. And that's what he does. And he says, wow, this is David's reaction. Verse 7, then Nathan said to David, thou art the man, or you are the man. Wow. Can you imagine, first of all, the courage of Nathan, the prophet, to do this? I mean, we're dealing with the king of Israel here. Like I said, a lot of power. He's probably surrounded by a lot of guards, a lot of secret service people. I mean, you know, it's not, it's not something that you just casually do. But he was going to be obedient to what God told him to, to do. And he was to deliver this severe word, this, this punchline. And the punchline is basically this word of accusation. You are the man. You're the one, David, in the story. You're the one who's not having pity. You're the one who did this horrible thing. I mean, David doesn't hesitate to get rid of people who disagree with him or give him any grief. And so here, Nathan boldly delivers this punchline directly with very little artistic finesse. You know, he used some artistic storytelling and finesse to get to this point, but now it's, he took the gloves off and he just, boom, you are the man. And it's really a word of denunciation. You know, this is a serious thing to put down a... A, a king, but if you notice from this point on here in this section of the story anyway, from this point on, David is no longer active. It's like a deer caught in the headlights. He's no longer standing. He's no longer taking the initiative. He's no longer taking. He's no longer sending. He's, he's completely passive. He's like putty in the hand of, of Nathan the prophet. He's silent. And he has to stand there in front of the accusative word of God coming from this prophet. He's no longer in control of the events. This is the king of Israel. He's no longer manipulating people for his own ends. 
But now the word of God is in control, not David. Now the word of God holds the reins. And this king, this mighty king, this king who abused his power in the previous chapter is made to sit like a child before his parents and listen to the lecture. And he can't do anything about it. We've all been there, right? I know Mason has. (laughs) I have. We all have. You know, you get in trouble, you sit there and listen to the lecture. What does God have to say to David at this point? It tells us, after he makes that statement, you are the man, thus says the Lord, God of Israel. And, and what does Nathan, God, say through Nathan? It's as, as if God is speaking here. He says, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house. I gave you your master's wives. I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. What is God saying? I gave, I gave, I gave. And what did you do, David? You took, you took, you took. That's all you did. This is the new verb. The new verb that draws our attention to it, to give. And it's God that's giving in verses 7 and 8. And that just shows us that God is a generous giver. He's not stingy. He gives things so we can enjoy them. And it really exposes the heart problem when we go back to chapter 11. Because in chapter 11, you have a guy, David, who's really operating from a sense of autonomy. He, he thinks that he's in control of everything. And he doesn't really believe that he has to give any recognition to the word of God at that point. Because he's clearly doing things that are outside of the confines of the word of God, so he's not giving it any thought. And before we impugn David too much, think of our own hearts. <laughs> How many times in our own lives do we do things on our own, without giving God's word or God any recognition at all. We just forge ahead because we think we know what's best. Well, in verse 9, God asks a question to David. I love the end of verse 8, by the way. He said, and if this were too little, David, I would add to you as much more. In other words, I wasn't even done giving to you yet, David. I I mean, I had an abundance to give to you. But what did you do? You took it for granted. You took, you took, you took. You became conceited and abusive in your power. You forgot where you came from. Here's this little shepherd boy that now is this mighty king. And he's really forgetting from whence he came. And it says in verse 9, Why have you despised, not me, but the word of the Lord? Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife, and you have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. I mean, that's a strong word. Think about it. What's God saying? David, here's my verdict on your life right now. You struck, you took, and you killed. And remember, verse chapters 11, chapter 11 has no excuses for David here. We're not going to paint some flowery picture because the text doesn't paint it that, oh, this woman, she was trying to entice him. You know, this is not a Joseph and Potiphar's wife situation at all. Put that out of your mind. And the reason we know that is because the Word of God confirms that in chapter 12. God says nothing of Bathsheba's actions. Nothing. This is all on David. David abused his power. You just took, took, took. Just like the man in the story, David. You took your neighbor's little ewe lamb that was just like a daughter to him You killed it and you barbecued it. That's severe. It's the word of God convicting the heart of David. It's the Lord's view of David's actions. And, I mean, God is gracious to David here, but he doesn't just get away with things. 
there's consequences that we'll, we'll be going talking about for weeks ahead in the, in, the, in the coming chapters. Look at what he says in verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. In other words, because of what you did, David, there's consequences. See, sometimes we think when we sin, somehow after God forgives us, then we get off scot-free. No. <laughs> there's consequences to our sinful actions. Um, even though God forgives us and he's gracious to us and he doesn't hold us to account for our sins because of our trust in Christ, there's still consequences. And we, we can never forget that. He says, because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife, this is a, the beginning of a long and bloody history of the Davidic dynasty. And it doesn't really end until the fall of Jerusalem and the coming of Jesus. I mean, it just continues. It's a very severe word. I mean, here you have a man who sinned with, you know, with attitude, with a high hand. It's blood guilt, you might say. Really under sentence of death by the law. And you say, well, who's going to put him to death? He's the king. Who's going to hold him account? I'm sure he's going to get off. I mean, that's how it works in politics, right? They're so powerful. They have so many lawyers. They have so much money. You know, they're never held accountable for anything. But that's not the case. Because remember Saul? King Saul? He was king. God took him down. I mean, God has his ways to get rid of kings when he wants to. And we would expect that David would be judged directly by God at this point. Just boom, let it fall. Let the fire fall, God. But that's not what happens. Because the word of God is also not just a gracious and wise and severe word, but it's also to David, it's a pardoning word. And here we discover something about David's life. Um, He says in verse 11, he's going to raise up evil out of his own house, all these things. He did it secretly. I'm going to do it in front of everybody. In other words, this is not going to be pretty, David, what's going to happen. And finally, verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That's all he said. I've sinned against the Lord. In spite of David's dark background, his dark actions, his sinful behavior, his profound depravity here, in spite of all the previous things that happened, here is a man who is, still has some considerable degree of moral courage. Why? Because he owns it. He owns it. He has some form of emotional sensibility. He's able to face up to this realistic situation. That he blew it. That he sinned. Here's a man who's willing and able to cast himself on Yahweh's mercy. That says a lot. Because there's a lot of people that wouldn't do that. They would defend. They would divert. They would blame others. Well, what's that woman? It's this, it's that. Just like Adam and Eve in the garden, right? See, the gospel is for David. It's, it's of the ilks of somebody like David. And even though it's late in coming, there's life for David, there's hope for David, because he confesses his sin. He's willing to confess his sin. I mean, think about it. We serve a God who would extend grace would extend mercy to someone like David in spite of his sin. That's just amazing to me. I mean, that should kind of shock us. That should just surprise us. <clears throat> I said this before, no matter how many steps you may have taken away from God, it only takes, what, one step to return to Him. 
God doesn't say, oh, you've got to go through all the hoops that you, you, know, you ran away from me for how many years was well, it going to take you so many years to go back. Nope. Just, just one step back. Just a willingness to say, hey, you know what? I have sinned against the Lord. And look at what Nathan says to David in verse 13. The Lord also has put away your sin, and you're not going to die. Wow. This kind of creates an issue in my mind. How can God overlook the behavior of David? Was he just winking and going, oh, I chose you, I guess i got to own up to this. You know? No. I mean, after David hears the judgment from Nathan, ultimately from God, you are the man, he confesses, verse 13. And then he's reassured by the man of God, by the prophet, the Lord has also put away your sin. That, that, that has the understanding, put away your sin, has the idea that it removes it completely. Forgave, forgiveness comes from the Lord. You know, it's, it's something where he, he removes the consequences, ultimate consequences of his sin, but there, there are still temporal consequences. All the stuff that God just said is still going to happen. We're going to see it play out. But you know what? Ultimately, in this life, what really matters? Eternity. You know, all the stuff that God said, yeah, you know, it's not going to evil against you come out of your own house. All that stuff, that's here on earth. But God is, through the prophet, is reassuring David that, you know what, because of your confession, I'm going to give you assurance that I put away your sin. You're not going to die. Well, how does that happen? It's just kind of ironic, in a way, verse 14 says there nevertheless because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord the child who is born to you shall die wow a substitute now that doesn't mean <laughs> those of us who are parents if our children die prematurely it's, it's a judgment on us or whatever. we're not saying that but in this case that clearly was the case that's what God did And so we saw in chapters 9 and 10, you remember the word we used, said, covenant love? We saw how David reached out in covenant kindness um, toward Mephibosheth and toward um, uh, Hanun, the son of a Gentile. Remember, he showed him gracious. He showed him love. Even though he could have killed him, he should have killed him. Mephibosheth could have been a, a threat to his, his kingship. But he didn't. He, he reached out. And the other one was a, a, an old enemy. He was a Gentile. You know, he could have done away with him too, but he didn't. He reached out in this covenant love, this, this covenant kindness. It can only really come from God. Who would have thought, two chapters later, the man that was just dishing out covenant kindness to these people that he could have killed would be in desperate need of covenant kindness from God? And that's exactly what happens. You know, when all this happens, you still have to ask the question, wait a minute, there's, there's still the verse in the Bible that says the wages of sin is what? Is death. The wages of sin is death. There's no way out of that. So what does, I mean, you know, is this just like a, a wink and a handshake and David goes his merry way? No. Um, David actually wrote a psalm that deals with this. It's in your notes. I think it's part of it. Psalm 51. And I just want to read this psalm for us tonight as we get ready to close because a lot of the battles and stuff at the the end of this chapter we're going to be going over in the future anyway. But I think this is important that we we grasp these things here because um, this this is really describing what's going on in David's heart. I believe at this time. It says even there in my notes, it says when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone 
into Bathsheba. Here's what he says. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Wow, guess what? That's that word, hesed. It's the same word. According to your steadfast love, your covenantal love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Isn't that how it is when we sin? When, we're to, when, we, when we do things that grieve the Lord's heart? We know we're doing it. We don't do it in ignorance. We do it deliberately. And it's before us. And what does it do? It creates guilt. creates doubt. It, 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 it creates anything but joy and freedom in the Lord. Verse 4, he says, Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, he's owning it. He's willing to come to God, a holy God, and say, you know what, I blew it big time. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, God, I, 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 I deserve every bit of judgment you're going to throw my way. Verse 5, Behold, I was brought, brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother uh, did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And then he says this, which is kind of interesting. Because we have this issue. The wages of sin is death. And David's struggling, going, okay, how do I... What sacrifice do I do for this, Lord? And guess what? There is none. You can search through the code of Moses, and you're not going to find any sacrifice for blood guilt. There's no sacrifice that can be offered for adultery or murder. It's not that easy. So there's nothing here that David can do to fix this. And yet he knows he needs a sacrifice for his sin. What does he do? Verse 7, look at what it says. It says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Seems kind of a random verse there, a random prayer. Just out of nowhere, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. But what he's doing is he's remembering the first time hyssop was ever used in the Scripture was in Egypt, night of the Passover. Remember when the judgment of God was going to fall on all the eldest sons? They were all under judgment. And God pronounced, pronounced that, that good news that whether you're, you're Jewish, you're Egyptian, doesn't matter. If they killed a little lamb, and if they took a hyssop and dipped it in the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost that the angel of death would pass over them. David understood that. And that's what he's saying. He's, saying, he's crying out to God saying, God, I can't fix this. I don't have a sacrifice for this. I can't go to a little book and say, okay, what do I do if I murder somebody and commit adultery? There's nothing there. What do I do? God, I need your sacrifice. I need the sacrifice based upon what you know. That hyssop is, a, is that substitute that was in Egypt when those lambs died for the eldest boy and that blood was put on the doorpost. See, this only really becomes clear to us in the New Testament when you finally see a young man, David's son, you might say, removed a couple times, God's son, hanging on a cross, bleeding and what did they do john 19 says a jar full of sour wine stood there so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and they held it to his mouth when jesus had received the sour wine he said it's finished and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit see this is god's son god's lamb that was shed for our sins, that was meant to carry away our sins, that was to blot out our iniquity. See, that's the good news of the gospel, is it not? That God provides. It doesn't matter how depraved you are. It doesn't matter how far off the rails you've run. 
It makes no difference. The fact of the matter is, is that God provides. And he provided for David. Even though his child, this newborn child dies, he still has trust in the Lord. I mean, it got so bad for David while the child was sick. It says that, verse 16, David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. I mean, he's, he's finally beyond himself. He can't control this anymore. And he's willing to bow his knee. He's willing to cry out to God in the depths of his heart. You know, I was back east with my family and I was in kind of had a ray of hope there for a while they gave Dave a pacemaker I think it was a Tuesday night and Wednesday morning we got to his room I walked in his room and he's actually looking at me and he's watching me walk around the other side of the bed and I thought wow I mean this is a guy that hadn't blinked in 48 hours literally not a lot of activity going on he was incubated he couldn't talk and I went over to his bedside, and I remember taking his hand and saying, can you hear me? And he not only shook my hand, he nodded his head. I'm like, wow, this is a miracle. And the doctors are going, we don't understand this. Usually, you know, you give somebody a pacemaker, I mean, when they've been out that long, it, it doesn't do this necessarily. And I remember communicating with him the gospel. I know you've heard it, Dave, but listen, you are very, very sick. Do you understand that? I don't know if you're going to make it out of this hospital. I don't know that. The doctors don't know that. It's, it's not looking good. More than likely, you're probably going to die here. So you, you really need to understand what I'm saying to you. And he understood. And I communicated to him again the, the gospel. I, I pray that your trust is in Christ and Christ alone, his sacrifice for your sin, the whole thing. And he gave me two thumbs up. And he was trying to talk, but he couldn't because he had his tube in his mouth. And the doctors said, you know, he, he wants us to know something. So they gave him a whiteboard, a little whiteboard like this, and it has different things on it, but you can write on it too. And they gave him a marker, and he couldn't even hold the pen, you know. But he had it in his hand. He's, first, it's just like scribble on, on a board. I mean, none of us, even the nurse is like, I don't know, what do you want? You know. And finally, he I mean, just tediously wrote out, help me. And I thought, okay, that's what we're trying to do. And I thought, I remember telling him, Dave, the only one that can help you right now is God, is Christ. You know, you need to, you know, Open your heart to him. And, and he says he did. I don't know. You know, uh, that's in the hands of God, right? But to see somebody who is so strong-willed, to see somebody who is so intelligent, dentist, for years, I mean, just very bright guy, in this bed with all these stuff hooked up to him, scribbling on a little board, help me. I thought, wow. What a horrible, you know, just a horrible way to end your life and yet you know what I know without a doubt if he cried out to God and and you know he said he'd done this before whatever I mean that's that's between him and the Lord but you know you're going through something like that and you're seeing somebody that that helpless and that's just what David is David was a strong individual before he's a warrior now he's on his knees begging for God's mercy for his children for his child and it says, the elders of the, verse 17, the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, and he would not. And he did not eat food with them. So they started getting worried. They're thinking, okay, this is our king. This guy's like so despondent. It says, on the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he didn't listen to it. How, what, what's going to happen if we go and tell him that he's dead? Right? I mean, that, that's kind of a serious thing. They say he may, he may try to kill himself. We don't know. He may, he may try to harm himself. It says that in verse 18. 
But David figured it out. When David saw that the, the servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David asked the servants, is the child dead? And they said, yeah, he's dead. Then David arose from the earth, and he washed, and he anointed himself, and he changed his clothes. You say, wow, that seems kind of... You think that now you'd really start grieving. It says, he went into the house of the Lord, and he worshipped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. And the servants are going, what in the world's going on here, Dave? We don't understand. Okay, you know, you should have been eaten before. Now, now your, your child's dead and now, now you want to celebrate? What is this about? You fasted, you wept for the child while he was alive. But when he died, now you're rising, you're eating food. And he draws a very good conclusion. Verse 22, look at what he says. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. Who knows? The idea is no one knows but God. No one knows but God. That is so key to understanding when you're in times of crisis. Nobody knows what the outcome is going to be. I mean, you can pray for somebody to get up out of a hospital bed and, and walk. And I even told my brother-in-law that. I said, you know what? God could heal you right now. I mean, you could be blown. You know, we'd be yanking that tube out ourselves because you're totally healed. But I, I would never proclaim that. Who knows? Only God knows whether the child will live or die. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? In other words, I'm not going to change this. There's nothing I can do to bring him back. But then he says this but I shall go to him. But he will not return to me. So it's kind of interesting that David has that kind of a trust, that kind of a hope in the sovereign God. And he really answers a question here for us in a roundabout way. A lot of times people say, well, when babies die, do they go to heaven or hell? And it's a good theological question to ask, really. But I would tend to believe that they go to heaven. There's not a whole lot of evidence other than this, this what, what David's saying here. But when you think about the character of God, when you think about a little baby, I mean, they're, they're born in sin. They're not completely innocent, right? How does God allow that to happen? Well, the only theological question I have is that God elected them all. <laughs> because if they're not elect, they're not, they're not going to heaven anyway. So it would be very easy for God to say, yeah, all the aborted babies, all the babies that died prematurely, all, they're, they're all going to be in heaven. Why? Because they're innocent? Well, they're not innocent in the sense of sinfulness. They're born in our, we're born in iniquity. We're depraved beings. But it would be easy for God to say, yeah, but I elected them. <laughs> so their, their, their sins are forgiven too, just like your, yours are. So it's kind of an a interesting question to ask. But in the end, you have to stop and you have to say, okay, where is your faith? Here's David who's gone from being this this gracious, covenant, love-showing individual to this hard, abusive person in verses or in chapter 11. And now he's this broken man at this point, crying before the Lord, realizing that all that's happened here is, comes from the hand of God. It comes by the Lord's hands. And so... You know, the, the, the rest of the chapter there talks about them, them going in, into Rabah and things like that and Solomon's birth. And it just shows the graciousness of God, doesn't it? It says, David comforted his, life, his wife Bathsheba, lay with her, she bore a son, and he called him Solomon. So the story continues. 
even though David was bent on <laughs> this sinful behavior, and even though most of us would have condemned David many verses ago, God didn't. And that's the same way it is with us, right? I mean, think of all the things that we've done to grieve the heart of God. I mean, God would be completely just in wiping us out. But he doesn't. He chooses to forgive us. It's not based upon who we are. It's based upon what Christ has done for us. And what ultimately where our trust is. Is our trust in our own power? Is our trust in our own ability to to do the right thing? Um, I'll end with that quote once again. When it comes to a great to great men, we must never start with a favorable presumption that they did or can do no wrong. Except by the grace of God, there go I. Um, we just need to be reminded of that because sometimes we're quick to judge, we're quick to jump on other people who are maybe dealing with sinful things and I would never do that. Well, be careful. Be careful. Let me close this word of prayer and then we can uh, ask any questions or have some prayer. Father, we thank you for our time and your word tonight. Thank you for the example of David. Thank you for your grace to him. And Lord, even though he has a a, toe, a tough road to hoe from this point on, Lord, it's going to be difficult because of the consequences of his sin. Ultimately, Lord, you forgave him. And Father, we just uh, thank you for forgiving us as well as we've put our faith, our trust in Christ. If there's any here tonight who's yet to do that, Lord, I pray that they would, from a sincere heart, cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Acknowledge their sinfulness before a holy God and cry out to you. Lord, it's not good enough to trust in a church or calling yourself a Christian or whatever. The only thing that really matters is what we do with Jesus Christ. Is our faith, our trust in Him, or is it not? I pray that it's in Him uh, for each one of us here tonight. Let's trust in You in Your goodness to lead us and guide us. We thank You and we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.